There's an important question that needs to be answered. It's a question asked by Christians and non-Christians alike. What's the question? Is the Bible a reliable source for truth? Is the Bible, this, this book, is it a reliable source for truth? This book that you hold in your hand or maybe you're looking at it on a Bible app on your phone, this book tells us that God created the world, that he created mankind and he created them male and female, and that mankind fell into sin through deception by an enemy of God. And then God promised that an eventual seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the enemy. Now, is this true? Are these things true? Is this book reliable? Can it be trusted? Is it the word of God? This question is both an intellectual and a practical answer. I believe that most people in their hearts and minds have come to a conclusion or at least an opinion on the question. There is another question that logically follows as well. Is the Bible the, the word of God? Not only is it a reliable source of truth, but is it actually the word of God? Now, if I was going to lay out a case for the Bible being the word of God, I would start by laying out the evidence, the evidence that exists for this book being the word of God. And there's different kinds of evidence. There's different kinds of evidence that can be brought forth to bear upon that case of whether or not this is the word of God. There's different kinds of evidence. And this evidence is broken up into two categories, two categories of evidence. There's external evidence and there's internal evidence, two categories of evidence on whether or not this book is the word of God. The external evidence would include discussion about the longevity of the Bible, the influence of the Bible, the circulation of the Bible, the preservation of the Bible in a form that is 99.5% pure. Internal evidence would include the Bible's self-proclamation that it is indeed the Word of God. The unity of the biblical text from cover to cover. The witness of the Holy Spirit. And there is at least one more area of internal evidence for the Bible being God's Word. And what is that? Fulfilled prophecy. Amen? Fulfilled prophecy. Now, this, this Bible study tonight is not going to be a presentation of that all that evidence, and, and I love that study, by the way, that study of going through the external and the internal evidence. But tonight we're going to focus just a tad on that piece of internal evidence for this book being God's word, and that is fulfilled prophecy. The Bible contains prophecies about future events, peoples, nations, and most importantly, the coming of the Messiah. So we're talking about tonight the prophetic testimony of the Bible. The prophetic testimony of the Bible. When you look at the prophecies of the Bible and you look at history, 
does this make this book more or less reliable as a source of history, as a source of truth? When you look at the prophecies in the Bible and you look at history and what has actually happened, does, does, does the reality, does that kind of come together and bring you to a conclusion that this is a reliable source of truth? And if it is indeed a reliable source of truth, is it God's book? Is it, is it God's word? And I believe this brings us to our text tonight. In his second epistle, the apostle Peter has been assuring the believers of what they possess in Jesus and what they need to do to continue in Jesus. And he's also been assuring them of the reality and truth of the gospel that they have received and believed. Last week, we talked about the eyewitness testimony of Peter that he gave about Christ and who he is, that he was an eyewitness of the majesty of Christ, that that he was specifically an eyewitness of the transfiguration, that time when on that mountain he was transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John. This week we're going to talk about the prophetic testimony and the reliability of the scriptural record. Tonight we'll look at two points concerning the prophetic testimony. First, the prophetic word is reliable. Amen? The prophetic word is reliable. And secondly, its interpretation is not an invention. It's not a man-made invention. So let's look at this text tonight. First, the prophetic word is reliable. Let's look down at first, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. It says this. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The prophetic word is reliable. The word of God is reliable and trustworthy. Peter here in this passage, in this text, Peter moves from his eyewitness testimony to the testimony of the, the prophetic word of Scripture. Uh, by virtue of what they saw in the life of Jesus and everything that we talked about last week where they witnessed this transfiguration. Remember, we talked about how Peter, James, and John were with him on the mountain. And really, it was, it was kind of that time where uh, Jesus kind of rolled back the curtain, so to speak. He rolled back the curtain of this particular flesh, and he was really transfigured before them. And they really beheld the majesty of, of his glory. And, and then, of course, there was the cloud, and God the Father honored the Son, speaking from the cloud, uh, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so we talked about all that. And so what Peter is saying here tonight in our text, that in light of what we saw on the mountain that we were eyewitnesses of, that this further confirms the, the prophetic word, the scriptures that you have, that, you, that you've read, that you've looked at. This puts that scripture in, in a place of, of, of just being literally fully confirmed to you, the reality of the reliability of it. The word confirmed here in the Greek is a word that it means, it literally means dependable, reliable, trustworthy, certain. It's actually, a, it's actually an adjective, but it's an adjective of comparison. 
It's an adjective of comparison. And so it is, it is reliable, it's trustworthy, and it's, com- it's compared to, it's as if to say it's, it's more trustworthy, it's more reliable, it's, it's confirmed in that sense. And, and that, I believe, is what led the, the translators of the English Standard Version, the ESV. I'm reading out of the New King James uh, tonight, but I, I believe it's what uh, led the translators of the ESV to translate this particular scripture this way in 2 Peter 1.19. You'll see it on the screen. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed. Now it was confirmed because if this is indeed the word of God, from the moment that it was spoken, it was the word of God. It didn't need any confirmation. Amen. The word of God doesn't really need confirmation if indeed it is the the word of God. Amen. It just becomes more confirmed to us because we see the reality and the confirmation that it is indeed true and that it is indeed reliable and it is indeed the word of God. Amen. So uh, it's, it's more fully confirmed. So the interpretation um, seems to be to have something made more certain. It's more fully confirmed. This is the prophetic word is made more certain. Now, some bristle at this particular interpretation and say, well, how can the word be more certain? Isn't it already certain? I mean, isn't it? It's already the word of God. It's, well, I already kind of preached that point, didn't I? I just you know, got ahead of myself. But here's what Peter is saying. Let's say you had a book of prophecy. And it had 320 prophecies uh, concerning the Messiah, a Messiah to be born, a Messiah that was going to come, what family he would be born from, where, what town he was going to be born in, all these, you know, 320 prophecies about this. And, and, and it, it just, they just went on and on and on and on. And I said, this book of prophecy is reliable. It's reliable. Now, if I said, now 300 of these prophecies that talk about his first coming, the first coming of this Messiah, they've been fulfilled. And here's how. And you began to recount all the prophecies of the first coming of the Messiah. And you began to talk about the, you know, the passage in Micah 5.2 that he would come out of Bethlehem of Ephrath, right? And, and how that was fulfilled and, and that he would come as, as, you know, from the root of, of Jesse and, and, and the seed of David. And, and, you, and you followed and you did the genealogies and all the rest of it. And, and one by one, you showed how all those prophecies of Messiah in terms of his first coming were fulfilled. Would we not say that the prophetic word has been made more certain would, would we not conclude, wow, this is, this is I mean, it, it, it was already, I've come to understand that it's the word of God, but wow, this, this book has some, it's got some fulfilled prophecy. Amen. I mean, it's, it's batting a hundred, a thousand, I was going to say a hundred. It's a hundred percent rate of uh, accuracy. And, and in terms of baseball average, it's batting a thousand. Amen. <laughs> it's batting a thousand when it comes to prophecy. It's trustworthy, yes. It's made more certain. It's, it's more reliable. And what would that tell you about any remaining prophecies that are left that still haven't been fulfilled? It would, it would, it would make those things specifically more certain to you. Amen? 
It's one of the things that we, when we come to the scriptures and we look at all the, all the prophecies that have been fulfilled that give us that sense of, wow, this thing is certain, this thing is trustworthy, this thing is reliable. So for anything else that it predicts and, and foretells that has yet to come to pass, man, I can, I can rely on this. I can rely on this. It's one thing to have a book of prophecies. It's quite another to have a book of prophecies that have been fulfilled. Amen? Peter says the prophetic word is confirmed. There were people who believed the prophecies spoken by the prophets of God. And there were people who held on to the belief that there would be a Messiah who would come just as the scriptures foretold. And he would come in a way and be exactly what the scriptures foretold. Peter is saying, hey, we're on the other side of this fulfillment of these prophetic testimonies, of these prophetic words, the prophetic testimony of Scripture. We're on the other side. We're on this side of it, looking back and able to say, wow, look at this. This is an incredible record. Jesus is Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He's fulfilled the prophetic word. Now, there are at least 332 distinct Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled perfectly. Wow, 332. So it wasn't like just, you know, 10 or 20. It was 332. To the, to the best of our knowledge in terms of deciphering what actually is a messianic prophecy or not. The combination of this evidence together from a simple statistical perspective is, to say the least, overwhelming. Professor Peter Stoner has calculated that the, prob the probability of any one man fulfilling eight of these prophecies, not 332, Eight of these prophecies is 10 to the 17th power. 10 to the 17th power. Okay? <laughs> I, want, I want to show you what kind of number this is, okay? 10 to the 17th power, that's 17 zeros, all right? It wasn't that long ago that... Not many people knew what a trillion dollars was, right? Now we speak of trillions as if, yeah, yeah, trillions, trillions, yeah. We're $19 trillion in debt, yeah. This is 100 quadrillion to one. 100 quadrillion to one chance of a person fulfilling eight of the prophecies. Now, let's just up the ante just a tad. Let's go to 48 prophecies. Let's just get wild here tonight. <laughs> let's just go for broke and get wild. That would be 10 to the 157th power. So this is 17 zeros. That would be one with 157 zeros. 
after it. I, ha I don't have any idea what that number is. I actually Googled and looked up high numbers. And I went through, and I, you know, it was just a little education, you know, because you think you know this stuff, and you're like, wait a second, I don't know this stuff. Because, you know, a million, a billion, a trillion, quadrillion I knew, quintillion. Then the, the next one I can't, and then there's septillion, octillion, non, nontillion, decitillion, and then, and then it gets into unodecitillion, and, and it sounds like a foreign language at that point, right? It gets really big, huge numbers, huge numbers. 10 to the 157th power? Now, anything over 10 to the 50th power is considered, in, in terms of probability and statistics, is actually considered absurd. Like, by definition, like literally absurd. This is 10 to the 157th power. And that's only with 48. We're going to have some mathematician or someone tell us what the number is for one person fulfilling all 332 Old Testament prophecies on the Messianic profile. Wow. What, I, don't even, I, I, I don't even think we'd be able to do it, to, 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 to fathom it. But I, I want to bring that out tonight to you to, I don't know, to, to put some weight <laughs> of understanding of the reliability and the trustworthiness, the more confirmed word, prophetic word that we have and that we hold in our hands, that, that it's reliable. Now, Peter goes on here and he says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, which you do well to heed. Now, in light of the, this type of confirmation, 10 to the 157th power, and we haven't even gotten started yet, in light of that type of reliability and trustworthiness, Peter says, you do well to heed this word. You do well for yourself. And I think the converse is true. You don't do well to not heed it. But you do well to heed it and really there's two reasons. One, he's already given why we should heed it because it's fully confirmed. Secondly, he says, because it shines in the dark. It shines in the dark. Look at that. Verse 19 again, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So two reasons to heed the scripture. One, that it's been fully confirmed to you. I mean, you can spend, you can spend your days and hours and lives, you know, going through all the evidence. And I, I, I'm, for one, I find a lot of it fascinating going through this type of evidence, but also a practical reason that Peter gives us here, because it shines. It's a light that shines in a dark place. It's a light that shines in a dark place. It's a, it's a flashlight for, for people groping in absolute darkness. And, and, and we've been given this prophetic word. We've been given this light that shines in a dark place. It's good because it's a light shining in a dark place. Now, the word for dark place 
is found only here in the New Testament. This is the only place this word for dark place is found in the New Testament or in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that dates to 285 BC. So just tucked that away, that's a little nugget there. The Greek Septuagint was translated 285 years before Christ. So it's very interesting when you're going into a lot of the Messianic uh, studies to look at, well, how did the Greek translators in 285 BC translate this Old Testament prophecy and what was their understanding of it and then to see the fulfillment and how the apostles interacted with that Greek text. And so it's very interesting. So you see this here in the New Testament and one other, a couple other places in, very rare in the uh, Septuagint, and, and uh, rare elsewhere in Greek as well. But its meaning is clear. Uh, it actually means, this, dark, this darkness, it means squalid or dirty. It's a squalidness of, of, of darkness. It's, it's, a, it's a dirtiness. It's a darkness. It's destitute of brightness. Dark. The word of the Lord will shine in dark, squalid, and a dirty place. And, you know, we wouldn't necessarily think of our lives being squalid. But in that sense, that's what it was before, before before we were forgiven by Christ, right? Before, before, before we redeem him, we were dead, the Bible teaches us. We were squalid. We were darkness. But thank God the light came into the darkness. Amen? The light came into the darkness, and the light shined. That light shined in my squalid darkness. And thank God tonight that... I thank God tonight that I humbled myself... To, to receive the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And not to reject it. And, and, and not to, to be too prideful to humble myself, to, to hear it and to embrace it. Um, and wow, we, we need this so bad because this world is just setting in just a squalidness, a dirtiness, a darkness um, that needs the light of God's word. Amen. Amen. And we're reminded of this light that is God's word from the scriptures, right? And back in the Psalms, you're familiar with Psalm 119, 105. Some of you have this in needlepoint up on your wall at home. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And really, I mean, in light of what Peter's saying, I mean, this gives it like a whole new, uh, another layer of understanding, amen, that he's literally lighting our path and that there's this squalid darkness in the world. And if you really want to take the time to read the first chapter of the Gospel of John and take what we've talked about here tonight and, and, and allow that to kind of set on your mind as you read that particular text in, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, where John is actually setting up the entire gospel with this idea of the light coming into the darkness, into this squalid darkness 
that needs the light of God's word. And he lights, he lights our feet and he lights our path. It's a light to our path. So we do well. We do well in our lives to, to have a flashlight. Amen? To have a flashlight. And it's probably, I mean, to even say flashlight is, doesn't quite cut it, does it? Um, I'm reminded of Calvary Chapel, Pastor John Corson. He's out in Oregon, Applegate, Oregon. And his whole teaching ministry in the Word is actually called Searchlight. You know, and so it's not a flashlight, really. It's like a searchlight. You know, you, you see these searchlights where they're out there, you know, and they've got these these lights and, you know, they're 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 lighting up the, the, the whole the whole area and, and giving light in that type of way. And that's the type of thing that God's word does for our lives. We do well to heed it. We do we do well to be in it. We do well to rely on it. We, we do well to hide it in our hearts. Uh, we, we do well to trust it. And so. Peter says here, he says, uh, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There's coming a day when we won't need the, the witness of this prophetic testimony. You say, really? Yeah. Because we're going to be with Jesus. We, don't need a, we won't need the written word. We're going to have the word. Amen? You know, we're going to have, that day is going to dawn and that light's going to shine and we won't need this searchlight. We're going to have, as Revelation says, look, we get to heaven, there's not even a sun because it's so bright. The, the day has dawned and the light of Christ is shining into our hearts for all of eternity. Amen? And, and, and that's really what we have to look forward to. Now the word... He says, uh, until the day dawns uh, and the morning star rises in our hearts. Some have connected this passage, uh, that Peter, the way that Peter's bringing up morning star, uh, to a prophecy actually by Balaam. It was actually a prophecy. We know that he was, you know, if you do the study in Numbers, you, you come to this character, Balaam, right? And... Um, it's a wild story, right? Because Balaam, you had, the, you had the children of Israel that were just this massive nation of like two million people out there, and they were, it was just spooking the surrounding, uh, you know, heathen nations, right? Their, their, their hearts were melting, and they were just quaking in their boots because they had heard what God did of bringing this nation through the, through the, the Red Sea and all the rest of it. And, uh, and so Balak... Uh, this king uh, hires the soothsayer Balaam to bring a curse down upon Israel. And we don't have time to go through that particular passage of Scripture because it's really it's like three chapters uh, in, 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 in numbers there. But um, one of the points of it is that he was hired, he was literally paid money, to bring a curse down upon Israel, but whenever he opened his mouth, he couldn't speak cursing. All, all he could speak was blessing upon the people of God. It's an incredible thing. Why? Because, because you know, we're, we're blessed. We're blessed people, right? And, um, you know, someone may try to come with a cursing upon you, but it can't be done. It can't be done because we're blessed people. And we're, 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 we've been one to Jesus Christ. And we've, been, we've had our sins paid for. 
uh, on the cross of Jesus. Amen? Amen. But so anyways, Balaam brings out these oracles, right? These oracles, and it ends up being this series of blessings. And in one of the oracles, he actually brings out what most scholars believe to be a messianic prophecy. And it is Numbers 24, verse 17. And this is Balaam prophesying. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, when you look at the Messianic profile, one of the reasons why many of the, many of the Jews, even to this day, completely missed the fact that Jesus was the Christ was because they were focused on this uh, conquering king coming, right? This, this one that was coming with a scepter, right, to rule and, 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 and to you know, perhaps throw off the shackles of, of, of the Roman oppression and all this. And so they missed it because he came first as the lamb, right? He, he came first as the, the lamb of God who was, who was the sacrifice, the sin sacrifice. He came lowly. He came humbly as that lamb of God. But he's coming back again, amen? And this time he's not coming back as the lamb of God. He's coming back as the lion, of the tribe of Judah with a scepter. And, and if you read Revelation, it talks about how he's going he's gonna to rule with a, with a rod of iron. Amen? And so a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And I think that's kind of, you know, you say, well, where are we in the prophetic timeline? And is this like the very end? And, you know, is the, is the Antichrist with us and all this? You know, we, we don't know. We don't know. We'd like to take stabs, and I'm one, to, you know, behind closed doors to take a few stabs at it. <laughs> you won't see me getting out on, you know, in the pulpit or anything and saying, you know, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988, you know. <laughs> Which was an actual book, by the way. And they had to, they had to, you know, they had to, you know, recant the whole thing when, the, when it was 1989. And we're well past 1989. But I think the hearts of certainly believers are crying out for the government of God. The government of God. You know? That passage where, you know, prophetic passage in Isaiah, you know, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And, and his government will not have an end. And that idea of the, the key on the shoulder, the, the government on the shoulder, the idea there is actually the key. They had the key that would be on the shoulder, and the person that had the key on the shoulder had this authority. And so whenever you see this keys and you link that into like what the prophet Isaiah says, and the government will be upon his shoulder because he's coming in to rule and reign with that scepter, with a perfect government. And we're crying out, for that perfect government of God, amen? And for the believer, rest assured, we, are, we have that. We have that now. We have that government of God. We're gonna have that full realization, amen, when, when we're literally in the presence of, of the king in that absolute sense. But, um, but we have that even to enjoy today. So this morning star, the day, 
The day will come that the morning star will rise. He will return with a scepter. He will conquer his enemies. He will rule and reign with a rod of iron. And Jesus specifically is called the bright morning star in Revelation chapter 22. I'll have this verse on, on the screen for you so that you don't have to dig it up. Revelation 22 verse 17. This is Jesus speaking in the last chapter of the Bible. He says, I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And so the day will dawn. The day will dawn upon us. And Jesus will shine in our hearts. And if you read the book of Revelation, you get to heaven. And there's no... We were sitting at dinner last night. And my little 10-year-old boy actually brought this up out of nowhere. I'm like, what is this guy? We all sat there and go, yeah, I guess you're going to be a pastor. He's talking to us about how there's not going to be a sun in heaven and Jesus is going to be our light and all this. And I'm like, man, you, where is he? Get him up here. He can preach this message. Amen. <laughs> he is the light of the world and he's going to be our light. That day will dawn. The darkness will be gone. The light of Christ will shine in our hearts in such a way that we won't need the prophetic testimony of Scripture and we won't need other lights as well. Jesus will be our light. But until then, but until then, let the light of God's word shine in the dark place and in your life as well. Okay, one concluding point. This is not as massive as that particular point, but this is a little less, little less here. Okay. Secondly, tonight, speaking of the prophetic testimony, its interpretation is not an invention. Let's go back to verse 20. Peter says this, knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Its interpretation is not an invention. When you drive around, you drive around, you know, probably most cities. Drive around, you'll see these signs or maybe even a storefront or a little hut, house type of thing on the corner, somewhere backed, in, backed into a corner. And you'll see the sign out front, and it'll say, palm readings, right? You have like a psychic, you have a, a palm reader, right? And so I guess the idea of a palm reader, you go into a palm reader, and, and I don't know what they do. I don't know what they got. They got cards. They got you know tarot cards, and they look at your palm, and they you know they they got their little setup with their little table and their whatever, and the, you know, and and it, it just it's just a it's just an invention. It's just an absolute human invention of a whole thing. It's a it's a palm reading. It, you know, you're gonna you're gonna read my palm and tell me you know what's gonna happen. I remember when I was in Baltimore, Maryland, a few years ago, and we were in this place called the Inner Harbor. Anybody? Been to the Inner Harbor of Baltimore? Yeah, there's a lot to do down there, you know? You go get, go get yourself some Maryland crabs, amen? Yeah, yeah. Or at least a crab cake sandwich, amen? And I'm, a, I'm, I'm born in Maryland, so I guess I'm a, 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 a crabber. Um, but anyways, we were in Baltimore. We were in the Inner Harbor. And there, you know, you have all these shops and restaurants, and you have uh, these, you know, little tents and people selling all kinds of stuff, right? And lo and behold, there was a palm reader. And I remember on this occasion, my, my boys were much younger at this particular time, and 
I said, boys, watch this, watch this. I'm going to go and talk to the palm reader. And so <laughs> I walk into the palm reader and I say, and, 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 and she was um, broken English, but she was, you know, doing her palm reading thing. And I said, I don't want a palm reading, but I would like to give you a psalm reading. Amen. <laughs> and she said, what? And before she could just figure out what in the world I was doing, I had my phone out and I had the Bible app pulled up and I read her an entire psalm. And, and, and so anyways, she, before she knew what happened here, she, she, she had heard this word of God. And at the end of it, she said, wow, that, that, that really blessed me. That really blessed me. And so I was like, good, good. The Psalms are really good that way. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, you don't need a poem reading. You need a psalm reading. Amen? Amen? And that's what we're doing on Wednesday nights, uh, just if I could plug the uh, Wednesday night fellowship. She looked at me and she said, wow, that, that blessed me. Now, when you come to verse 20 and 21, it seems to say that no prophecy, no, no prophetic word, no piece of scripture, prophetic piece of scripture, is of a private uh, interpretation. And what well, seems to say that, and it does say that, right? We just read it. That's what it says. But what does it mean? What, is, what does that mean? It's no private interpretation. A private interpretation, and this is coming from the particular word there for private, it's the idea of one's own. And um, it's a word in the Greek, it's adios, it actually looks like adios, but it's not. It's, it's not Spanish, it's Greek, and it means private. And it, it literally means one's own. And so the idea of uh, a private interpretation would be one's own in that sense an, an, of, as an invention of the person. Like as, if I were to go out and, and write a short story or come up with my own whatever, that would be my own private uh, thing in that sense. And so it, it's this idea of a private interpretation, one's own interpretation. Oftentimes prophet, prophets um, would give interpretations of their prophecies or their visions or their dreams. We know that the prophets had, some of them just delivered, you know, thus saith the Lord. I am the Lord your God and blah, blah, blah. You know. And then sometimes there were visions and then sometimes there were dreams and they would, they would um, give interpretations. And then there would be others in, in, the, in the pagan cultures that would do the same thing. You know, people like a Balaam, you know, that would give, you know, that they would have their, their visions and their, their prophecies and, and their uh, things that they would bring. And they would bring their own, not only would the prophecy be their own invention, but the interpretation would therefore also be their own invention as well. And so Peter really here is saying that, uh, well, before I get to that conclusion there, the term for interpretation appears only here in all of biblical literature. Um, however, the word does appear in non-biblical Greek literature and means the solution or explanation for a dream, riddle, parable, omen, vision, or the like. And this is taken right out of the definition from the Greek-speaking world of, of, of ancient Koine Greek. So what's going on and what Peter's saying is that the prophets of the Bible did not give 
their own interpretation, their own private interpretation. They didn't have a vision. They didn't have a word from the Lord. They didn't have a dream or whatever it was. And then add to some private, some made up invention of their own, a a private interpretation to what they were saying. They gave at that time, the, the, whatever the, the, the interpretation of the, whatever it was, the dream, the vision, the, the, the word from the Lord. And so, and, and the whole thing boils down to this, is that if it is the word of God, there is, and, that's, and, the, and the word of God is not made up, then the interpretation, the true interpretation, is also not made up either. It's not a made up invention of human creativity, right? And so it's not subject, the prophetic word is not subject to one's own private interpretation, but the interpretation of scripture can be known in that sense. And so this is what Peter is talking about. Because you had these other prophets, these other soothsayers, these other people that had visions and omens and whatever they, were, they had. And they would have their dreams and their visions and their made-up inventions of, of, of solutions to the problems, to the, to the, to the issue at hand. And so you had a, you had a made-up word and you had a made-up interpretation. What Peter is saying here is we don't have a made-up word and we don't have a made-up interpretation. That if, the word, if this is truly the word of God, it is the word of God. And the true interpretation is not a, a, a man-made invention as well. It's not. It's from God. Everything is from God. The word is from God. The interpretation is from God. Look at verse 21. Peter says, For prophecy never came by the will of man. The prophecy wasn't man's will. It wasn't man's invention. It was from God. Here's how it happened. And Peter actually tells us how it actually happened. How is it that we have these prophetic words? And he tells us, look at there in verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The ancient Greek word translated moved has the sense of carried along as a ship being carried along by the wind or the current. It is used here, and it's the same word used, uh, used as, of a ship in Acts chapter 27, verses 15 and 17. That The ship is carried in this way, carried along. And so really, you have the human vessels of the men of God, the holy men of God, the prophets, that were literally like, you know, vessels like sailboats <laughs> that, you know, they hoisted their sails and the Holy Spirit came in and moved them in the way to say what they said. And it was the word of God. And this is how the, the scripture was given. It's as, it's as if the, the writers of scripture raised their sails in cooperation with God, and the Holy Spirit carried them along in the direction that he wished. So what is Peter saying? Listen to how one commentator answers the question. And follow along real quick, and we're right at the end. Not only the prophetic phenomenon, phenomena, the dreams, visions, oracles, or whatever they are, 
Not only the prophetic phenomena were not invented by the prophets, but also the interpretation of those phenomena was not their invention. In both the phenomena and the interpretation of those phenomena, we have a testimony independent of human testimony. Independent of human testimony. So that the prophetic testimony is the word of God and can be trusted and applied to your life with assurance and confidence. Amen? And this is what Peter is saying. Amen? So you do well to heed it. You do well to heed it. Why? Because it is a word, a prophetic word made more certain. And it is a lamp, a light that shines in a dark, dark place. Amen? And let us be people of the word in this time of darkness. A time of darkness and we are told in the last days that there would sweep over the earth a great delusion. A great delusion. Such a delusion that Jesus says even if the elect were able to be deceived. It's that great of a delusion. I'll end with this. The disciples asked Jesus, tell us about the end. Tell us when the end's going to come. Tell us when the end's come. And you know what the first words out of Jesus' mouth were? Make sure you're not deceived. Make sure you're not deceived. That's the key. That's the key. We can, tra- we can run down all these rabbit trails and we can figure out and we can figure out the timeline and that I'm all about that. And I'll, you know, it's great. You know, this is, a, this, is, this is an inexhaustible book when it comes to that. But the greatest thing we can do is let this thing be a light, a lamp into, the, into our darkness and to let it be that lamp that leads our path and lights our way that we're not led astray in a great delusion that is, is sweeping over the earth, and I believe right now in an incredible, incredible way. So Christian, let us realize that this is the prophetic testimony of God. It's reliable. It is sure. It, it is trustworthy. And we do well to heed it.